Hi everyone, the World Bank EdTech team speaks with educators around the world to learn how they're innovating. And today, Cristobal Cobo, Senior Education Technology Specialist at the World Bank, is speaking with Amy Clement, Managing Partner of Imaginable Futures, and Sergio Venegas Marin, Young Professional at the World Bank Education Practice, about monitoring countries' readiness to support education with digital technologies. Imaginable Futures supports an initiative called the Global EdTech Readiness Index, part of a larger initiative called the Global Education Policy Dashboard, funded by a partnership between the World Bank, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the Government of Japan. The dashboard is to provide policymakers with a system for measuring the drivers of learning outcomes in basic education around the world. And the EdTech Readiness Index aims to help countries assess the readiness of their ecosystems in leveraging EdTech to promote learning for all. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast, a conversation on the use of technology and innovation in education globally. My name is Cristobal Cobo. I'm the Senior Education Technology Specialist at the World Bank. We are very pleased to have with us today Amy Clement, Managing Partner from Imaginable Futures, and Sergio Venegas Marin, Young Professional at the Global Education Practice from the World Bank. Both of you, welcome to this session. We will talk about Imaginable Futures, the partnership they have with the World Bank, and the new exciting initiative for monitoring how ready our countries support education with digital technologies. Amy, let's start with you. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do at Imaginable Futures. Thank you, Cristobal. Thank you so much for hosting this. It's a joy to be here. So Imaginable Futures, we are a global philanthropic investment firm. We were founded and funded by Pierre and Pam Omidyar, the founder of eBay. And we were previously part of Omidyar Network as their education initiative. And we've been making investments in education since 2009, many of which we call investments in equitable ed tech. So really using technology to improve education for all children, regardless of income or location or race, et cetera. We spun out of Omidyar Network in January of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. So we are an independent organization with a sole focus now on learning. We are purely impact first. So we, we have a unique hybrid structure where we're part philanthropic foundations, we make grants, and we're also part LLC where we are an, an impact investor. So we've got really flexible capital where we can look at the problem first and figure out the tool second. So we use that capital to support entrepreneurial innovations and also system change approaches, sector infrastructure research, a whole host of things, which includes our partnership with the World Bank, the one that we're talking about today. We really exist to unleash human potential through learning for all people. And this all people is really critical for us. Over the past couple of years, we've taken a much more intentional view towards equity in our work recognizing that in each of the geographies in which we work, so we work in high-income, middle-income, and low-income contexts, the U.S., a handful of countries in Africa, and a handful of countries in Latin America. And what we've really come to grapple with is that all of these systems of education are perfectly designed to produce the inequitable results they produce, and they're really often rooted in colonization and racism and white supremacy. And so more than ever, we're really focused on systems change. Our roots have been in entrepreneurial approaches and investing at the kind of edge of innovation. 
that comes from our roots in Silicon Valley and our roots in supporting social entrepreneurship. And this is where we really continue to invest to support really bold entrepreneurs for profit and nonprofit. And we also take the best of that and couple that with system change approaches, really working deeply to understand systemic forces, barriers, enablers, inhibitors, working together to try to really create a healthier system. We've invested over $225 million across the world in 125 nonprofit and for-profit organizations. Wow, it's really remarkable the work that you do, and we are so interested to learn more of, of that and also what are the agendas that you have in collaboration with the World Bank. But before that, let's get back to Sergio. Sergio, welcome to the program. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit of the projects that you are currently doing at the World Bank? Thanks, Cristobal, and thank you for having me on. Excited to be here. As you mentioned, I am currently working as a young professional with the Education Global Practice of the World Bank. As you can imagine, the practice works on many different topics and, and areas, but the bulk of my work focuses on global initiatives related to foundational learning. I work in two broad types of projects. On the one hand, I spend some time working on developing global public goods with the goal of helping countries strengthen teaching and learning at the classroom level. For instance, lately I've been spending a lot of time working on global public goods related to structured pedagogy and issues of language of instruction. But perhaps most important for today's discussion is the fact that I spend most of my time working on projects that help generate data, evidence, and policy recommendations in order to strengthen system performance and decision-making at the country and global level. Aside from the EdTech Readiness Index, which we will be discussing in detail throughout the episode, one project that might be worth highlighting is the Global Education Policy Dashboard, which is actually quite related to the EdTech Index. Just by way of introducing the dashboard very briefly, in essence, back in 2018, with the launch of the World Development Report on Learning, came the realization that while the world had done tremendous progress in getting most children to school, many of those children were not learning. Now, it's important to point out that there were still many children out of school, especially children with diverse educational needs and those living in fragile settings. So this was still important. But by this point, the conversation on education challenges started to reflect not just on access, but also quality of education. It became clear that the world was suffering from a very deep learning crisis. And there were many indicators like the Human Capital Index, the Learning Poverty Indicator, and others that highlighted the depth of the learning crisis and made stakeholders globally aware of the crisis. But awareness was just the first step to actually address these problems. We needed to understand what they were, and that was the idea behind the dashboard. Thanks to a partnership with Gates Foundation, the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the Government of Japan, the dashboard aims to collect and report information that can offer countries a comprehensive snapshot of how their system is working, their education system. And by doing so, it aims to highlight gaps between current practice and what the evidence suggests would be most effective in promoting learning. And second, it also provides governments with a way to set priorities and, and track progress as they work to close those gaps. It's truly a very ambitious and innovative project, especially once you start looking at the comprehensive framework, the, the instruments used to collect information, the overall approach to data collection and so on. But perhaps let me stop here and maybe I can get back to this and link it back to the collaboration with Imaginable Futures. This is great, Sergio. Thank you so much. Amy, listening to Sergio, obviously the right question here would be why working with the World Bank in educational technology? Why do you think a tech could be relevant in the context of these collaborations? Yeah, well, listening to Sergio, it was very clear to me 
the vision for the project, we find really, really compelling. Maybe just to take a step back, we know ed tech can help close the gap for students while also empowering teachers. Evidence has shown that these models can be both highly effective and scalable. At the same time, few countries have been able to scale ed tech equitably. So in 2018, we sought to really examine how and why. We partnered with researchers at RTI and we studied ed tech in four different countries. So in the US, in China, Indonesia, and Chile. These are countries that we saw have scaled the use of ed tech nationally. And we really wanted to study what happened there. We compiled the results in a report called Scaling Access and Impact, Realizing the Power of EdTech, which we can, which you can access on our website, Imaginable Futures. And what we found was that while each country's journey was really unique, that there were four key factors necessary to activate an ecosystem that was both scalable and sustainable. So the first is the EdTech supply and business models. The second is the enabling infrastructure. The third is policy and strategy. And the fourth is human capacity. And there's a lot underneath each one of these four. So we were really excited to learn about the World Bank's Global Education Policy Dashboard that Sergio explained earlier, to think about together with the World Bank, how might we start to integrate the EdTech Readiness Index into this kind of work to really help countries avoid reinventing the wheel? Thank you for sharing these resources. We will add some of them in when we present the podcast because I would strongly recommend to the people interested in this field to have a look at because they're incredibly comprehensive and, and very accurate and relevant for this discussion. Sergio, you and I, for the last year, plus a number of colleagues from our unit, we have been working in the design and implementation of this EdTech Readiness Index supported by Imaginable Futures that was discussed by, by Amy. Can you tell us a little bit about this initiative? Why building an index? Who has been collaborating in, in this initiative? Sure, happy to. Well, it's important to point out that the journey of this initiative has been truly unique because obviously, having been conceived in pre-COVID times, we couldn't even imagine how relevant the index, the information the index provides would become during COVID times, where EdTech is at the center of the strategy to ensure continuity of learning during school closures. When this project was first conceived, we were on the early stages of the dashboard project. Through the dashboard, as I mentioned, we were trying to measure the key drivers of learning, and we focused on drivers that we knew were important and we had sufficient evidence to support them. For instance, we know that at the school level, for learning to be realized, there need to be capable and motivated teachers, basic inputs and infrastructure, students that come ready to learn, and capable school management to bring all of these elements together. At the same time, we knew that schools they not operate in a vacuum. Teachers and principals are responding to the signals they get from the education policies that somewhat govern service delivery. So measuring those, their existence, but also the extent to which they're implemented was also important. And even beyond policies, the dashboard also aims to capture broader aspects of the political and bureaucratic system. So a pretty comprehensive framework to provide a snapshot of the system. But at the same time, something that was largely missing was the role of edtech. Within this context, we knew that EdTech had a role to play in enhancing learning and addressing some of disparities in learning outcomes. That was true before the pandemic, but it is certainly more true today as we have this conversation. Yet we didn't have the evidence and the actual data to inform policies aiming to create the, the enabling environment for EdTech to thrive and to actually have an impact. And this is where the idea of the index came to be, especially because we had seen that 
back then Omidy Art Network, what is now Imaginable Futures, was working on this understanding of what would make edtech thrive in a country. So in essence, our response to this problem of not having enough evidence was that we needed to work on a tool that could be used to actually identify and measure the enabling conditions for edtech to be effective. And by doing this, we're essentially trying to do two things. On the one hand, we're trying to identify and measure the different factors that are key for edtech to be effective, which can help governments pinpoint where there is room for improvement. But at the same time, there is this other side by which we create an aggregate measure that can signal to countries their overall level of readiness. It's also important to highlight some disclaimers. The goal is not to create a very comprehensive diagnostic tool, rather a light touch tool that can motivate action and signal the level of readiness to countries. And the main reason for this is that we're interested in generating a tool that is going to be cost-effective and will generate data quickly, especially at a time when this type of data is so important to countries, given how much they rely on technology to ensure continuity of learning. In terms of where we are today and who has collaborated, I think today the EdTech Index counts with a sound framework, a set of indicators, a data collection instrument, and an approach to data collection that we're hoping to implement in the next few months. And this progress is largely thanks to the amount of support we have received through the entire process. I think there are four key pillars that I would mention. First is our partner. There is a reason why we're both here discussing this collaboration. This work, if it was possible, is thanks to the partnership with Imaginable Futures. They not only fund the project, but they've also been a tremendous ally in thinking through these complexities that we have to deal with as part of the index and also adapting to this new reality that we all live in today. Also important, the team, we have a core team that includes Cristobal and I, but then also a number of consultants who have helped build this project, as well as senior colleagues in our practice who have guided us through a lot of difficult decisions that have been made along the way. We have also been extremely lucky to count with the strategic vision of our technical advisory board, which we assembled at the beginning of the project. We have several key organizations represented in our tab, including the UNESCO Institute of Statistics, RTI, the Center of Studies for Information and Communication Technologies, Intel Corporation, as well as others. And they have been offering incredible advice through the entire process. And lastly, I think it's also worth noting that we didn't have to start from scratch. Over the past two decades, organizations have been working in this field and have developed frameworks and instruments that have truly helped frame our thinking and have made our job a little bit easier. So I think today we're in a good place, and this is largely thanks to all the wonderful colleagues that have contributed. But yeah, looking back now, it has been quite a journey seeing how this idea has evolved as the global situation and the role of edtech within it has dramatically changed over the past year. Sergio, this is awesome. Fantastic. Such a journey that you described in just a few moments. Amy, listening to Sergio, to what extent you think digital technologies are helping countries mitigate the implications of this pandemic, particularly considering the heavy implications of the school's lockdown? Sergio, when you speak, you make us sound very prescient. And <laughs> I really do That's think right. that this time is... is <laughs> You know, this work is just so important for this time because I'm just convinced that we're we're not going back, right? I mean, we're 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 moving forward. We're moving we're moving to a new normal. We're sort of in this in this portal to a new world where where ed tech will remain and will continue to become more and more important in our school systems around the globe. So what we are seeing is that ed tech is both connecting learners to school and to teachers. And it's widening and exacerbating existing inequities that 
that it's a both and scenario that, that both can be true at the same time. As a previous Silicon Valley product person, I led product at PayPal and eBay for many years. I'm just thrilled with the innovation we're seeing, with the adoption we're seeing, how quickly the S-curve is moving and the early impact that we're seeing. As a justice seeker and a change maker and, and frankly, just like as a human being, I'm really devastated by the inequities we're seeing. You know, where we have some kids who haven't missed a day of school or in highly interactive remote learning situations. And then we have others who are completely out of touch with their teachers, with their schools and are missing their midday meal and more. So the reach of ed tech is just one example of the injustices laid bare by this crisis. And we all need to be thinking about what does this mean for these populations? And, you know, as I said before, it's not just about access. And just to give it like a little, put a little bit more color into it, you know, includes everything from devices, connectivity, speed, digital literacy of parents and students, usability, cultural usability, language, cost to access the learning resources, a quiet place to learn, support from teachers, so much more. There's, there's really a lot here that we need to think about to ensure that we're utilizing ed tech to its fullest. And with all of that said, we've seen some amazing uses of technology during COVID that's benefiting learners that don't require the full ecosystem to be in place, right? So one example is Ubongo, which is a fantastic organization based in Africa that is now reaching over 10 countries with their high quality programming for early learning that's both learn video and audio and proven efficacious results. Another example we're seeing is from Teach for All, which is a global network of education leaders across 50 plus countries. And I really love this example because it's a new way to use the current rails and sort of current infrastructure for basic ed tech. So right after the pandemic hit, they launched a teaching without internet WhatsApp group for teachers to share best practices for learning during school closures. And they've seen over a thousand teachers, I think from 56 countries collaborating and, and learning from one another. It's really organic, it's global, it's teacher-led. And I remember this one story from one teacher from Teach for Pakistan who was teaching two classes of 50 girls. And so she created this like WhatsApp school and she saw great engagement from kids and from her learners. And what was really interesting too, was she saw an immediate uptick in parent engagement and it's created new ways of connecting teachers and parents and collaborating with teachers and parents in a way that I think is just a massive opportunity during this time bringing teachers and parents and communities together through basic, basic technologies that people are using today is one thing that I know we're not going to turn back. Amy, I love your answer. You, you highlight some of the bright sides, like connecting people, but at the same time, you remind us that the shadows element that the current context can really amplify inequities. So this is super important to have the kind of complexity of this issue. Other complex issue has been the pandemic as an overall economical and societal implication for many sectors of the society, but also I would say the pandemic has been incredibly disruptive for the 
people working in this index. So I would like to explore with Sergio to what extent this global school lockdown has really challenged the data collection and the focus of the tech readiness index. You mentioned something a minute ago, but it would be great to go a little bit deeper on that. And to what extent do you think the results from this index can be really integrated into the education policy dashboard that you mentioned a moment earlier? Thank you. I mean, to guide our answer and the way we've been approaching this, I think it's really important to highlight the scenario that Amy just described. It's the fact that when schools closed all over the world, many children were relying entirely on technology to stay connected to learning opportunities. And this highlighted many inequities around the world. Many children were not connected and therefore they were not learning. So this put pressure on us to ensure that we could generate data quickly to inform the situation that countries are living day to day right now. And obviously that has some implications for, for the data collection approach, because obviously our approach to data collection needed some rethinking because of COVID. Initially, we were thinking of sending interviewers to the field, visit a sample of schools and in those schools interview teachers, principals, and students. The benefit of this approach was that by linking the data collection of the EdTech index with that of the dashboard, we would be able to link the indicators of the two initiatives, which would allow for looking at the relationship between edtech elements and the different outcome measures that are captured through the dashboard. So quite neat, but unfortunately, that is not a possibility at the moment since sending interviewers to the field is not safe right now due to the threat of spreading the virus, especially because you would have interviewers going from school to school, collecting information. So to deal with this situation, we try to innovate keeping in mind that countries need information now. We came up with a dual approach to data collection in the medium term, when it is safe to go back to the field, we will follow the initial plan, but in the short term and recognizing that countries need information now, we decided that it was best to plan for remote data collection. So right now, our approach to data collection is based on a phone-based survey directed to school principals. This is going to have some impact on our sample, the type of data that can be collected, the stakeholders that can be interviewed, but we're managing those challenges and we're consulting with other organizations that are doing similar surveys to ensure that we preserve the highest quality possible. But at the end of the day, this was the best compromise that could be reached to ensure we met the high demand from countries for this type of information. In terms of how this will fit into the dashboard, the idea is to eventually integrate the questionnaires of the EdTech Readiness Index with the dashboard ones so that when we collect and report information on one, we're reporting on both. Similarly, the website for the dashboard will report data on all the dashboard indicators, and eventually this index, once we have data for it, will be part of those indicators that we report on. Awesome. Thank you for that. Amy, based on all the experience that you have and considering what you have observed during the pandemic, what would you think are the most impactful ways of supporting education, and what will be the role of the tech industry? And finally, what challenges do you foresee in this field and how to address them? You know, I, I think first there's just the challenge of the situation, both the urgency and the need. We have an unbelievable crisis of learning on our hands from early childhood, basic literacy and numeracy, loss of the midday meal, girl dropouts, trauma. It's something that requires all of us. And we know that this impacts our future economies. Professor Hanyashek out of Stanford has famous research that concludes that if a state improves the quality of learning by 0.25 standard deviations, the state's GDP increases by 0.5% annually. 
this is huge. And, and we believe the opposite to be true. So it's impacting future economies. We also believe it impacts well-being and social cohesion of a country. So I firmly believe that it will take bold, entrepreneurial, ethical, collective leadership. There is no silver bullet. I wish I had an easy answer to your question, Christabel, mm. but to, to me, it's just clear there is no silver bullet and we all need to come together for children and for families and for our collective future. And one thing that, that really came to light over the past year as we have lived with this pandemic is our deep interconnectivity, our interdependence. And as we wake up to that dependence that we have on one another, we really need to reckon with it. This awareness must lead to greater inclusion. And as we think about what that inclusion looks like, thinking about, you know, how do we kind of share power, include more voices? How do we engage previously underestimated and undervalued groups and really bring in their knowledge, insights, solutions to the fore? to ultimately create more solutions and a more just world where all people can thrive. This has been a deep reflection for us during this time. So now when I think about what does that mean for the ed tech industry? Well, we know that technology is great for scaling what works, right? And we know that technology can enable rapid testing and learning, seeing what's working and what's not. You can update the code every night and change and improve and implement that change quickly such that it proliferates throughout the system versus having to do teacher PD or sort of massive human overhaul. And we know that tech isn't going away, that a lot of these changes are not going to roll back. And so, so what I think this means is that we need to ensure that these systems, the access, the software, the teacher training, the policies, et cetera, are all really built with equity in mind and that they are built in partnership with deep customer understanding, that they are honoring cultural differences and they're addressing the trauma that so many have experienced during this time. And that we're supporting, you know, one thing that we really focus on is to enable all of this is that we're supporting diverse entrepreneurs, that we're supporting software and solutions that are built with people who are close to communities who are most in need. And that we really help support those organizations and those people who I think are, are closest to the challenges of these students. Great. Sergio, Amy is saying, and I fully believe that the technology is not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go away. So let's get back to the index. What is the sort of information that will provide this edtech readiness index? And how do you think it can support decision makers and education leaders who have interest in this field? Well, as Amy mentioned, the challenges are great. Pre-COVID, we estimated 53% of 10-year-olds, over half of all children, were not able to read and understand a simple story in low- and middle-income countries. Looking at the world post-COVID, that share will be about 63% based on recent estimates. This is huge. And this is largely due to the fact that while governments around the world are trying to ensure continuity of learning through the use of technology, many children are simply not being reached. They're just not connected yet. So this highlights the important role that EdTech has in reversing this negative trend and unlocking some positive changes in learning outcomes. So when we think about the index, the goal of the index is to offer a somewhat comprehensive snapshot of the EdTech ecosystem, but from the perspective of the schools to help guide countries' efforts in using EdTech for positive change. 
But at the same time, it's meant to be very light touch. So it doesn't report extensively on each factor. Rather, it simply provides a signal of whether something is working well or not. In terms of the factors that the index will report on, there are six pillars that will be part of the index. There is school management, teachers, students, devices, connectivity, and digital resources. You can think of the first three, the school management, teachers, and students, as the actors in the education system. And the last three, devices, connectivity, and digital resources, as the inputs and infrastructure they need to effectively use EdTech for teaching and learning. For each of them, there will be a practice indicator and a policy indicator. And important to highlight that for each of the policy indicators, there will be a question that gets at the existence of the policy, and then another question that gets to the de facto implementation of that policy. Because they can give you drastically different answers. You may have a policy on paper that says that all teachers must receive trainings once a week, but when you ask the teachers, they tell you a very different story. So a major principle that was followed in the development of the index is to capture this type of inconsistencies, basically allow the linking of practices at the school level to the policies that could be responsible for them, and not just their existence, but also their implementation. And we believe this snapshot can be quite useful to policymakers as they work in catalyzing, if you will, the power of edtech to promote and sustain learning gains. Without this type of information, implementation of edtech policies can be challenging and, and at times also ineffective. A government may choose to buy tablets for every student, but are the tablets reaching the students or are they locked in a closet to keep them from breaking? Do the students have time to, to use them and opportunities to do so? Do the teachers have the right skills to use the tablets or, or to support students in using them? If any of this is a problem, are there policies that could address the challenge and so on? So in essence, we hope that the index and the information it provides will help guide countries as they work on integrating edtech in their education systems and also make sure that every student is reached. Well, thank you so much to both of you, because you are really emphasizing the importance to have a broader understanding of the digital divide. We call it internally digital divides, emphasizing all the dimensions that both of you have emphasized, I've mentioned now, but also the importance to have high quality data to secure better decisions when uh, planning to support schools and teachers. So this is fantastic. Now let's get back to the final, but my favorite part of this conversation. Why don't we discuss for a moment a book that you would like to recommend and a podcast that you would like to endorse or suggest people listen to? Amy, would you like to start? Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious what Sergio will say. <laughs> so on, on the book, I'm in the middle of reading a fabulous book called Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. And it's a really provocative look at systems and complexity and emergent strategy, which I think you've heard Sergio speak really bravely about today and how one responds in the moment to changes and really, really listening to the need. And particularly, as you just talked about both practice and policy, what's happening on the ground. So highly recommend that one. And then podcasts, I couldn't control myself. I have two. Mm -hmm. One I think is highly applicable to this audience. It's called Learning to Overcome. It's actually a podcast that we did in partnership with UNICEF. It's just a three-part podcast. It's a brief one, sharing some of the really fantastic innovations we're seeing during this time, supporting student outcomes and also student and teacher well-being. So since that's only three parts, I also would highly recommend my favorite podcast I listen to on a weekly basis is called On Being. It's really a dialogue around what it means to be human and how 
do we want to live? And I think all of us who are in this space of education and learning and and trying to create a better world for all of us. She just brings on some amazing guests from all over the world, all types of religions, all types of practices to really kind of increase self-examination. As we all know, change starts internally before we can bring it outwards. Wow. I can't wait to listen to those podcasts. Thank you it's a great so one. much for the recommendations. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Sergio, what about you? I just wrote down the recommendations <laughs> from Amy, looking forward to them. I don't know if it's a good idea to recommend a book that I haven't finished yet, but right now I'm reading a book that I'm really enjoying. It's called Think Again by Adam Grant. It just came out recently and it deals with the idea of the need to unlearn and rethink what we know. In today's world, we tend to have very strong opinions and very grounded opinions, and, and we reject new information that conflicts with them. So the book offers an invitation to let go of views that are no longer serving us well and foster a mentality that values openness to new ideas and a continuous rethinking of our understanding of the world. So far, I've been really enjoying it. And in terms of podcasts, I'm afraid to say that most of what I listen to is in Spanish, actually, for podcasts. So just in case there are some Spanish speakers out there listening to this, I highly recommend Radio Ambulante, which is a podcast that brings to listeners interesting and personal stories from all over Latin America. I think at a time like this, when we're all somewhat isolated at home during the lockdown, connecting with each other and with personal stories is quite important. And this podcast has been quite useful for me. Absolutely fine to share podcasts in Spanish. No problems. So actually, we have the lack of having people listening to this podcast from nearly 100 countries. So it's not only Spanish, many other languages. And keeping that in mind, I would like to invite both of you to share to our listeners a call to action in these difficult times. What would be your, your kind of actionable message for them? Amy? I think my message would be to self-care and compassion. I think I'm I'm just seeing I'm really concerned about mental well-being of so many in across the planet as we as we face these poly crises and and just making sure that people are taking the time for for reflection and you know getting outside and just sort of looking up at the sky and recognizing you know the spaciousness <laughs> and the the largeness around us because I think it both puts things into perspective and also reinforces the urgency of this important work we're doing. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Sergio? I would say stay engaged with the issues you care about and, and try to find a way to contribute. I mean, COVID has been so disruptive that to get back on our feet and to get our communities back on their feet, it's going to take all of us to contribute in different ways. For me, that is finding ways of helping more children learn um, how to read and, and other foundational skills. But there are many challenges out there. So find one that you care about and see how you can make a difference in your community or at the global level. Sergio and Amy has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and for the experience that you have shared. And we look forward to see this index helping countries in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cristobal and Amy.